Good morning and welcome to the Houghton Wesleyan Church. We are glad that you're here this morning. The call to worship this morning is from Hebrews 12. Please stand. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Please pray with me. Dear Lord, help us to feel welcome here this morning. Invite our brokenness, our insecurities. Be with us this morning and help us to feel warm in this place and help us to feel your presence. In the Lord's name we pray, amen.
Amen. It is, a, it is a great joy to step into the stream and to be a part of the, of the river of God's people through the ages. And it is a good thing to remember that as we uh, go about our own journey. We're so glad that you're here today. We invite you to have a seat. Uh, we, there's a lot of sickness on campus this week, uh, this weekend. Over, maybe, like a, over 100 cases of people who have uh, this gastrointestinal bug. And so we thought maybe it would be a good idea to not do anything to perpetuate that this morning. So um, we'll sort of forego the, the uh, greeting time. If you want to shake hands, like with elbows or something, and we encourage you to do that after the service. But uh, we thought maybe that would be prudent. Then that's also the reason we decided to postpone communion this morning until next week. Again, thinking it might be prudent to do that. Uh, again, based on the advice of the uh, physicians who we were consulting. So uh, that is a bit of a change in the, uh, in the order this morning. But we are glad that you are here and pray that, uh, that uh, together we will uh, open our hearts and encounter what God is doing in our lives and during this time together. We, um, we have finished, just about finished a week of our three-week prayer vigil. We are hearing stories of folks who are having some great experiences in the prayer room. If you haven't had a chance to yet be there, let me encourage you to sign up uh, this coming week. And if you've been, sign up again. I find that, um, that it, takes, it takes a lot of time going in to really experience all the things that are, that are available in the rooms as you come to pray. So let me invite you to that. We're going to hear uh, just another uh, testimony this morning about prayer. And then Jess is going to share a little bit about Operation Christmas Child. I would like to invite you to the Operation Christmas Child Packing Party on Wednesday. It will take place in the Christian Education Building, which is behind us, from 6 to 7 o'clock. We will be packing, and you can come part of that time, all of that time, anywhere in between. But at 7 o'clock, we will take our boxes, and we will have a time of prayer and dedication of the boxes and praying for the children that will receive them. If you are unable to come to that time, there are some other ways that you can help. There are boxes available in the foyer And you can pick up your own box, and you can pack it and drop those off sometime this week. Um, This is the last official week of Operation Christmas Child, and next Monday night I will be taking the boxes to our our shipping location. So sometime this week, if you're planning to pack a box or you didn't think about it but would like to, you have an opportunity to do that this week. And another way that you can help out is to donate items for our packing party. Um, We had somebody donate a large amount of stuffed animals, but we could still use school supplies and anything else that can go in the boxes, toothbrushes, toys, arts and crafts, you name it. We can probably put it in the boxes. Um, Or another way is if you don't feel like you can get somewhere to pack your own box, maybe that's not 
your cup of tea. We can also use monetary donations. We, um, the shipping for each of the boxes went up from $7 to $9 each, and so that's another need that we will have on Wednesday night. We're doing it part of our children's ministry, so some of those children will come to our packing party unable to pay for that box, so that's another way um, for you to contribute. So um, if you have any questions, you can see me, Pastor West, um, Pastor Smalley. Um, any monetary donations could be dropped off at the church office or to any of the pastoral staff, and any donations can be dropped off in, there's a red box in the back of this foyer, and also in the Christian Education Building. Thank you. Let me invite you to join me in the, uh, the reciting of the uh, Apostles' Creed. I'm just stand as we uh, recite this historic affirmation of our faith. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Please be seated.
The Old Testament scripture reading this morning is selected verses from Zephaniah. Hear the word of the Lord. The Lord gave this message to Zephaniah when Josiah, son of Ammon, was king of Judah. Zephaniah was the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah. I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, says the Lord. I will crush Judah and Jerusalem with my fist and destroy every last trace of their Baal worship. I will put an end to all the idolatrous priests, for they will go up to their roofs and bow down to the sun, moon, and stars. They claim to follow the Lord, but then they worship Molech too. And I will destroy those who used to worship me, but now no longer do. They no longer ask for the Lord's guidance or seek my blessing. They think the Lord will do nothing to them, either good or bad. That terrible day of the Lord is near. Gather together, you shameless nation. Gather before judgment begins. Seek the Lord, all who are humble, and follow his commands. Seek to do what is right and to live humbly. Gaza and Ashkelon will be abandoned, Ashdod and Ekron torn down, Moab and Ammon will be destroyed, Ethiopians also, says the Lord, and the Lord will destroy the land of Assyria. What sorrow awaits rebellious, polluted Jerusalem, the city of violence and crime. It refuses all correction. It does not trust in the Lord or draw near to its God. Its leaders are like roaring lions, its judges like ravenous wolves. Its prophets are arrogant liars. Its priests defile the temple by disobeying God's instructions. On that day, I will purify the speech of all people so that everyone can worship the Lord together. On that day, you will no longer be rebels against me. Those who are left will be the lowly and humble, for it is they who trust the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel will do no wrong. They will never tell lies or deceit one another. They will eat and sleep in safety, and no one will make them afraid. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. For the Lord will remove his hand of judgment and will live among you. At last, your troubles will be over, and you will never again fear disaster. On that day, the announcement to Jerusalem will be, Cheer up, Zion. Don't be afraid. For the Lord your God is living among you. He is a mighty Savior. He will take delight in you with gladness. With his love, he will calm all your fears. He will rejoice over you with joyful songs. I will save the weak and helpless ones. I will bring together those who were chased away. I will give glory and fame to my former exiles, wherever they have been mocked and shamed. On that day, I will gather you together and bring you home again. I will give you a good name, the name of distinction among all the nations of the earth, as I restore your fortunes before their very eyes. I, the Lord, have spoken. This is the word of the Lord. As the ushers come forward, please stand for the singing of the doxology.
Dear Lord, we've been ridiculously blessed. You give and you give and you give. We deserve none of it, but let us have this opportunity now to give back in the same way you give to us. Help us to give graciously and to think of our gifts as gifts directly to you. In the Lord's name we pray, amen. Please join me in the prayer of confession that is printed in your bulletin. As we come into this place and enter in with our God, we come in humility and recognizing our need for him. And so confession is always an important part of, of coming to God and acknowledging that we need his grace in our lives. Let us pray together. 
God of our fathers, we see the faith, courage, and holiness of those who have gone before us. And we realize how often we fall short of their witness. Forgive us when doubts stifle our faith. Forgive us when fear paralyzes our courage. Forgive us when our desire for self overwhelms our desire to be holy. As we pray these words of confession, let us hear your promise of pardon. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen. Gracious Father, we not only come to confess our sins and to offer to you our praise, but also to bring to you the burdens and the concerns of our hearts. As we gather today, there are issues of grief, health issues. We are struggling with relational issues. We struggle with uh, confidence and about the future. We struggle with confusion about decisions that lie before us. We wrestle with sin in its various forms. And in this moment now of silence, we ask for your healing, comforting, transforming grace in us. Father, we thank you for the ministries of this church. We do pray that you will bless Operation Christmas Child. And as we prepare boxes and send those, may they truly be transformational in the lives of children, families, communities. We also pray for the churches around us. And today we pray for the Wesleyan Church of Orchard Park and Pastor Dan Jones. May your gracious blessing be upon this gathering of believers that they would be united with one another in your love and grace and be able to share that with their community and beyond. And Father, we think of the needs beyond us. We think of our nation, people still recovering from recent disasters and and, uh, attacks and all the ways in which We have to, things we deal with in this broken, fallen world. And we think of the divisiveness in our nation. We think of the world beyond us and refugees and and people who live with war and, and threats of war. And in this moment of silence, hear our prayers for this world that you love, you've created. We join today with churches around the world to remember our brothers and sisters who live with the threat of persecution every day. It's hard for us to imagine the kind of stress and pressure that they live under. But on this day, as 
as well as other days. May our brothers and sisters in these circumstances know that you love them, that you are with them. Give them courage and strength for the difficulties of their lives. We pray, Father, that you will help them to know that we love them and that their their brothers and sisters around the world support them and care for them. And, Father, open our eyes to ways in which we can support them and care for them. We pray that your church would maintain a witness of love and mercy in the midst of violence and hate. Lord, we pray that that you will continue to give us a new perspective of life. Help us to see others as, as you see them. Teach us the way of humility. Open our minds and our hearts to all that you desire to do in us and through us as we focus and reflect on the greatness of who you are. We offer these prayers in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, remembering the prayer that he taught his disciples to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love,
The New Testament scripture reading this morning is found in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Please stand for the gospel reading, and children will be dismissed for children's church following the scripture reading. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and the angels came and attended him. This is the word of the Lord.
Please be seated. Do you ever have one of those, those moments, those days, when you'd like a do-over? Oh, why did I say that? Or why did I do that? Or why didn't I say that or do that? I had a lot of those moments when I was in school after an exam of thinking, oh, I wish I had a do-over to study for that. Uh, most, I'd say a fair number of Sundays... As I'm driving home, I'm thinking, oh, I wish I had a do-over. I forgot about this, or I forgot about that, or did I really say that? I can't believe I really said that. You're probably walking out saying the same thing. Last Sunday was one of those days. We're talking about Habakkuk, and, and Sunday afternoon, Monday morning, I was thinking about it. And I realized, I'm not sure that I, I really... Grasped, I really communicated the, the passion of Habakkuk and, and the desire of Habakkuk's heart and his interaction with God. And, and one of the reasons is because, you know, there was, I didn't talk, we didn't talk about the fact that Habakkuk asked these questions of God and God doesn't run from those questions. Habakkuk is not at all condemned for bringing to God his honest questions. In fact, I think as the prophecy progresses, God uses those questions to bring Habakkuk to a place of trust. It's the questions that initiate the conversation. It's the questions that that rise up out of Habakkuk's heart and out of his mouth that allows he and God to have this interaction, this conversation that gets him eventually to the end of the prophecy in which he says, God, even if nothing I want to happen Even if things I want to happen don't happen, I will trust you. And I will rejoice in you. And the prophecy of Habakkuk is the sense of even if. And a sense of how long. And a sense of God, aren't you going to do what you said you're going to do? Zephaniah is God doing what he says he's going to do. Zephaniah is answering those questions of Habakkuk. Zephaniah is is not a conversation between the prophet and God. It is God saying, here's what I'm going to do. And the beginning of this prophecy of Zephaniah is actually pretty graphic and brutal. We barely, we read the first, the second verse of chapter 1 and the 18th verse of chapter 1. And sandwiched in between is a whole lot more like it. Because he begins the prophecy by saying, I will sweep everything from the face of the earth, says the Lord. And he ends that, prof- that, that first chapter by saying, he will make a terrifying end of all the people of the earth. When we read that kind of language from God, it does make us a little bit nervous. We get a little bit apprehensive, not just because God is is speaking words of condemnation, but because it just doesn't seem very nice. Right. And and, and we want God to be nice. But in this prophecy, God begins and spends an entire chapter, and actually most of the second chapter, is God's words of condemnation upon primarily Judah, but the whole world. 
It is a wake-up call that God is delivering here. This is the kind of thing that you say to, to someone playing around the nests of poisonous snakes. It is not a time to, to be subtle. It is a time to be direct and clear. And God is direct and clear with his people and with the whole world. He wants to get their attention because what they are doing, the sin in which they are engaging themselves, is destroying them. It's leading them down this path of destruction. And he wants them to stop. He wants them to understand that. I, I, as I read this, I, I thought to myself, in the, maybe in my generation, maybe generations before... A lot of the conversation that we tended to have in the church was about the wrath of God. God was stern and, and, and God expected us to live under these rules and guidelines. And it was very restrictive and it was, and it was very difficult. And there was a lot of, of sort of negative images of God. And in response to that, we have swung the pendulum way over here so that now... We almost see the forgiveness of God as an entitlement. It doesn't matter what I do, God has to forgive me. It doesn't matter how I live, God will just forgive me. And while that is true, there is in that mindset that, that almost has an implication that God doesn't really care what I do. He'll just eventually forgive me. And God is saying, while his forgiveness is offered to us, while he offers forgiveness to every person in every way about everything, God is trying to help us understand what we often miss, that sin is more serious than we tend to think of it. Can God forgive? Of course he can. Does he want to forgive? Of course he does. But he also doesn't want us to live in these destructive patterns of life that are leading us down pathways away from him and away from his forgiveness. And we think God doesn't care. We can do whatever we want. That's what the people of Judah think too. But God does care. Because if you love what is good, it means you hate what is evil. Because what is evil is influencing what is good. And drawing it away from what is good. Most of the prophets talk about things like this. And most of their, their accusations, most of their concerns are with injustice. And while Zephaniah talks a little bit about injustice, he talks about violence and crime in Jerusalem. His main point is taking it a step back from the, what people see. What he's concerned about is the cause of the injustice and that's idolatry. You read in chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, I will crush Judah and Jerusalem with my fist and destroy every last trace of their Baal worship. I'll put an end to all the idolatrous priests, so even the memory of them will disappear. For they go up to their roofs and bow down to the sun and moon and stars. They claim to follow the Lord, but then they worship Moloch too. It's idolatry. Now, the hard part for us is when we think of idolatry, we think of blocks of wood or stone or images made of gold or silver that people get on their hands and knees and they bow down and worship. And we don't do that. So idolatry is not a problem for us. And we sort of 
We sort of look condescendingly upon the Israelites who worship these pieces of wood and stone. But actually, idolatry is anything that is the central focus of our lives that is not God. Whatever it is that our lives orbit around, if it's not God, it's idolatry. Idolatry is ultimately rooted in self. It is putting ourselves in the center of our lives. It is putting what we want in the center of our lives. It is putting uh, our self-centeredness in the center of our lives instead of God. The problem with idolatry is that it just continues this path of destruction. Because when, when our lives are focused on ourselves, when that's what drives our decisions, it drives our relationships, it drives everything that we do, we become manipulative. We become violent in all of the forms of that. Not only with, our, with physical things, but with our words. And we cut ourselves off from the source of all that God wants for us. It destroys our witness because it says to to other people who are not followers of God, this is what it looks like to live for him. And ultimately, it's rooted in a skewed view of who God is. Idolatry, to worship idols, to worship the things of our lives, that whatever they may be, sometimes it's wealth, sometimes it's, it's... Uh, success, sometimes it's fame, sometimes it's a relationship that, that is more important than God is. There are all kinds of things, and many of them good. But when those things become the central focus of our lives, what we're really saying is, as wonderful as God is, he's not enough. I, I believe that God is good, he's just not that good. I believe that God is loving. He's just not that loving. He cannot fulfill the deepest desires of my life, but this can. Idolatry in many ways is taking a shortcut to those things that we yearn for and desire. God created human beings to flourish. You read the first couple of chapters of Genesis and and you sense God creating with joy and with the purpose of flourishing the earth and all that he creates, including human beings. He creates us to know the flourishing joy of his peace and his presence and his grace and mercy and love and everything beautiful. That's what God creates us to experience. And he planted that into our souls. It is the deepest desire of our, of our existence to want what God created us to experience. And when, but when sin gets in the way, we begin to think that we can find that and experience that in any other way than God. And we tend to, to, to want to find the shortest, quickest route to that. And it's hard because God, our journey with God toward what he has created us to experience is often a zigzag, circuitous, troubling, mountainous, difficult struggle of a journey. Because all along the way, we are battling idols that we want to hang on to. 
And all along the way, God is trying to move us away from them and to, and to be victorious over them. And we go through difficulties. That's why we talk about the way of life is the way of the cross. You just look at Jesus. And a lot of following Jesus and getting to that end that he created for us is waiting for God to do what we want him to do. And we struggle with waiting. We're continually trying to avoid waiting. You see this in Exodus 32. The Israelites are in the wilderness and Moses goes up on the mountain and spends 40 days with God. Glorious experience. The people down in the wilderness are waiting and waiting and waiting. And 40 days is a long time when you're waiting. And they become impatient. And what do they do? They say to Aaron, look, I don't know if this Moses guy is coming back or not. We're not sure. But we need something now. We can't afford to wait any longer. So make us a golden idol that we can worship. Shortcuts always lead to idolatry. Our our inability to wait always leads to idolatry. You look at the, the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness that we read just a few moments ago. Every one of those temptations is about taking a shortcut. It's about, Satan says to Jesus, you can have all the things that God has promised you. You don't need to go through suffering. You don't need to go through the pain of all this human stuff. You don't need to go to the cross. You don't need to die. You can have it now. Right now. And he tempts us the exact same way. The problem is, when we fall for that, When we give in to that, it doesn't lead us faster to the blessings of God. It leads us the opposite direction of the blessings of God. Idolatry not only leads us to injustice and and leads us to to the, the worship of things other than God. It leads us away from God. And what we end up with is we are worshiping paper mache images. Of what God really wants for us to experience. What God wants for us is what Zephaniah describes at the end of this prophecy. Where he says, I'm going to bring you home. I'm going to gather you. And I'm going to bring you home. And I'm going to be with you. And I'm going to give you a good name. And I'm going to restore your fortunes. That is what God wants to do for us. And he's speaking to people who are going to go into exile. And it's going to be difficult for them. It's going to be a struggle for them. But he says, I'm going to bring you back if you trust me. That's my plan for you. My plan for you has not changed. I want your life to flourish. That's my dream for you. That's my plan for you. That's my goal for you. It's what I want for you. And God says, I'm going to bring you home. Home is the place of security and peace. Life. And even if your image of home isn't that, the reason it's so painful when it isn't that is because we know that's what we want it to be. And God says, this is what I have for you. I'm going to be with you. And I'm going to make things happen in your life and to you and for you. You couldn't begin to dream. But you've got to trust me. 
And the only way we learn to trust God is to wait for God. Because it's only in waiting for God and trusting God that we draw close to God. I was in the prayer room earlier this week with the elders and we spent some time sort of uh, in silence on our own. And I spent about 10 or 15 minutes at the kneeling bench pondering this picture of Jesus, the shepherd holding a lamb. It's this beautiful image. I'm sure it comes from, from the... Luke 15 of the lost lamb and the shepherd that goes to find this little lamb. And as he is, as he finds him, he, he holds him close. You can see the smile on the shepherd's face. He's so happy. And in this prophecy, Zephaniah says, not only do we rejoice in God, but he delights in us. He delights to be with us, to hold us, to make us secure. The problem is, idolatry and all the ways in which we struggle with that is that it leads us to wrestle with God instead of just nestling with God. We've had a new little puppy in our house for about a month. And he's great. He's a cuddler. We love that. You know, you love nothing better than a cuddling little puppy, right? But he's starting to get to the point where he's, he's, he, he, he wiggles a lot, too, when you try to hold him. We named him Wrigley because our boys love the Cubs and, you know, Wrigley Field. But we should have called him Wiggly because that's what he's become. I mean, yesterday I was holding him and he's fighting me, trying to get out of my arms. And, and each of us in the house have said it frightens us because we about drop him sometimes. And he doesn't realize the kind of peril he's putting himself in by fighting with us like that. Well, I mean, we're happy to put him down when he wants down. But he thinks he needs to get there faster. And he fights with us. And he can't see that, that we're not trying to harm him. We're just trying to keep him safe. And it struck me as I looked at that image that that's what God wants for us. To trust him. To let him hold us safe. And all the while, we struggle and we keep wrestling thinking that there's a faster way, a better way, a a quicker way. And there's not. Any other way leads to peril and injury. So the question that's been going through my mind is how do we get to what God wants for us? How do we get to that place where we are able to begin releasing this this battle struggle we have with idols? In chapter 2, verse 11 of Zephaniah's prophecy, he says, God, I'm going to destroy your idols. And the word destroy sounds like God's going to pick them up and smash them on the ground, and then we're done with them. But that word actually means to starve. To famish. The King James Version picks up on that. He says that what I'm going to do is I'm going to starve your idols. I want God to smash them. I want God to smash them, be done with them, and I can move on. I want, even in that, I want the shortcut, right? And God says, but the journey of of starving your idol will draw you closer to me every step along the way. And the journey of me starving your idols is going to mean that you're going to have to trust me more and more and lean on me. You're going to need me. 
And so how does God help us starve our idols? By focusing our attention on Him. By helping us see that everything we do, all the spiritual disciplines of life, reading the Scripture, prayer, joining together in worship, serving, all of these things move us from a self-centered mindset to a Christ-centered mindset. But you'll notice that he begins chapter 2 with, by saying, gather together. Yes, gather together, you shameless nation. Gather before judgment begins, before your time to repent is blown away like chaff. Gather together. That's the first thing he says. And I think he's saying to us, until you gather yourselves, it's pretty difficult to change the focus of your attention. Now, we think of gathering, we think of coming together like this. And and that is a part of it. I think it's a personal and a corporate gathering that he's talking about. But, But when he talks about gathering ourselves, it made me think of something I often hear watching basketball games. Where the announcer will talk about how a player caught an errant pass. And before he could take that pass and shoot, he had to gather himself. And what does that mean? It means that he takes a couple of seconds to make sure his feet are set and his weight is shifted appropriately and he's got the right grip on the ball. And then, once that happens, he can take a shot that has a higher chance of going in than if he just stayed in that position and flung something wild up to the basket. And one of the problems they'll talk about is he he didn't take a moment to gather himself. She didn't take a moment to gather herself. There is in that idea of gathering oneself on a basketball court that subconsciously says something isn't right yet. Everything isn't in the right place. My feet are not positioned right. My weight is off balance. I don't have the right grip on the ball. And if I have any chance of making this shot, I'm going to need to take a couple of seconds and gather myself. And I think that's what God is saying to us. It's what musicians do before a concert. You take a few moments by yourself and you gather yourself. It is realizing, number one, that everything isn't exactly where it should be. And number two, it's recognizing that we need to do something to put it in the right place again. Because here's the truth about our relationship with God. He will not change us unless we want him to. God will not change us unless we want him to. Do we do the changing? No, God does all the changing. But until we want him to change us, he will not change us. And and this idea of gathering ourselves individually and corporately is in essence saying to God, we want you to change us. We recognize that there are problems in our lives. We recognize that we are struggling with these idols. We recognize that our focus is too much on us and we want you to change us. 
And God says to us, that's all I need. I just need to want to. And we'll do it. We'll start on this journey. We'll continue on this journey. Through the ups and the downs. Through the right turns and the left turns. Through the difficulties and the struggles. If you will trust me. If you'll stay focused on me. We'll get there. And I'll change you. It's the want to. And I'm convinced that it starts. It starts with an understanding of the great plans that God has for us. God has plans for us that far exceed anything you and I could ever dream or imagine. The question is, do we really believe it? Do we really believe that God's plans are to prosper us and to cause us to flourish and to lead us into a life of rejoicing and celebrating where we experience the joy of being with him and his delight at being with us? Do we truly believe that? When we begin to believe that, the want to, starts to change. And we start to become different people who no longer dread that great day of the Lord, but look forward to it with all the anticipation and excitement that we could possibly imagine. God has great plans for us, awesome plans for us. Do we believe it? Do we believe it enough To want what he wants. Father, we want to thank you for your great plans. Forgive us when we become lost in ourselves. Give us a new focus, new passion, new desire. And we pray this through Christ. Amen. It's intriguing to me that in the beginning of this third, or the middle part of that third chapter, when he starts talking about that day to come in its glory, he says, Sing, O daughter of Zion. Sing, rejoice, daughter of Jerusalem. I think back to Revelation, and when you read the story of the, we read what happens in the heavenly realm with the saints, they are singing their praises to God. And it strikes me that if that's what we're going to do on that day, It's always an appropriate, right, healthy, good thing to do this day. So I'm going to invite you to stand as we sing together this this song, uh, Blessed Assurance, that says, talks about, this is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. Let's stand and sing.
Amen. Amen. Receive the benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen. Amen.